This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. I think most people would agree that a good litmus test for the health of a society is how we treat our children. Do our children get good educations? Are they safe? Are they healthy? Can they have complete childhoods? Are they loved? Are they taken care of? I don't think any of us would look at a society in which there was a lot of child soldiers or children in sweatshops or children dying in infancy and say, well, that's a great society. Let's emulate them. And yet with all of our resources, with all of the advantages of this society, when we look at how we feed our children, it's really shocking. And it's not just parents who make bad choices. It's not just kids who see Saturday morning cartoons and want the Lucky Charms and the Coca-Cola and the ringdings. Are ringdings still a thing? I used to like them. It's our government and it's our schools. That if you look at what is being served in school cafeterias, and very often the school cafeterias are the main meal of the day, sometimes the only meal of the day for the most vulnerable, the poorest members of our society. It is downright criminal. Now in 2007, I had a conversation with Amy Hamlin, who is the founder and director of the New York Coalition for Healthy School Food. At that point, they were called the Coalition for Healthy School Lunches. And we had a conversation about what school cafeterias and lunchrooms are really like, about how some kids, because of the, the scheduling constraints on time and space, were actually given lunch like 10 o'clock in the morning and had nothing to eat after that. How surplus agricultural products like ground beef, cheese, corn syrup, white potatoes get funneled into the schools as a dumping ground so that these manufacturers can make their profits and the economic pressure on school food service directors. And that conversation um, I did before the Plant Yourself podcast was even a twinkle in my eye, but I've kept it in archives and I um, pulled it out and republished it a couple of months ago in preparation for the call you're about to hear today. Because I got back on the phone with Amy um, after eight years. For some reason during the conversation, I keep referring to 2006. I think I, I got the year wrong, but it was a, a 2007 call. But I wanted to know what's happened in the last eight years. Has there been positive movement? Are things worse? Are things better? So that's what this conversation is about. And Amy is, you'll, you can hear, is still energetic, still passionate, still fighting the good fight. And there's been a lot of progress. There's a 2012 um, change in, in the uh, in food policy that makes it mandatory for the school lunch plate to contain at least one fruit or vegetable. But there's still an awful lot of work to do. And so on today's Plant Yourself podcast, we're revisiting the story of school food and the state of how we feed our children in the year 2015. So without further ado, Amy Hamlin, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. So we talked back in 2006 about the Coalition for Healthy School Food. And um, let's give, for people who haven't listened to that or skipped ahead, give us a brief overview of the organization, and then we'll get into some of the other stuff. Great. Thank you. Well, back in 2004, we wrote a legislative resolution 
that recommended that schools offer healthy plant-based entrees as well as other healthy options and nutrition education in schools. And that resolution is a recommend, it's not a law, it's a recommendation, and um, it passed unanimously. And so as a result, we then formed a nonprofit organization to implement the recommendations of the resolution. That was in 2004, and we started out as the New York Coalition for Healthy School Lunches, then we changed it to the New York Coalition for Healthy School Food because it's not just the lunches in schools that are a problem. It's a whole school food environment that includes many things like food used as rewards, vending machines, bake sales, um, fundraisers, you know, sales of candy and cookies. So all sorts of all sorts of um, food in the school. It's the whole school food environment. And then what happened is since then. We've had a lot of success. We have gotten two schools in New York City to adopt vegetarian menus. We have several other schools that have alternative menus in New York City, which eliminate certain types of meat and have more plant-based options, and they're less processed. And then we work with the Ithaca City School District in upstate New York, and we have every Thursday we have our cool school food recipes on the menu. So... We've made a lot of progress, um, and it's not just in New York State. Our recipes have been distributed to 25,000 schools nationwide, and some of our resources are used around the country. So now we do business as the Coalition for Healthy School Food. Gotcha. So when, when we talked in 2006, there were a whole bunch of issues that that were on the table. It really it really felt like you were you know at the beginning at the at base camp trying to uh, to climb your way up this giant mountain. Give us a sense of what what changes have been made. You know successes that that you've um, particip- participated in or changes in the in the environment that give us reason for for optimism and hope. Well, I think you know we're one small piece of the puzzle. There's a lot of amazing people who are school food advocates. I think one thing that distinguishes us is that we only focus on plant-based foods and with good reason. I think the U.S. dietary guidelines have since then moved in a more plant-based direction. It's been many, many years that they've been saying our diets should be primarily plant-based. In fact, at one point, I think it was 2010, but it might have been 2005, when they said our diet should be primarily plant-based and we should eat less meat. But then the meat industry really got up in arms about that, and um, the wording quickly got changed to eat leaner cuts of meat. So we've all heard eat leaner cuts of meat, but really that was um, a compromise to eat less meat. And they've They've come back around this time for the 2015 guidelines, which aren't yet out, and they're saying eat less meat, eat mostly plant foods. And um, this is actually coming out of the sustainability committee of the dietary guidelines. And then there's certain elected officials who are getting very upset about it, stating the environment has nothing to do with how we should eat. And of course, it very much has everything to do with how we should eat. And um, it just so happens that the way we should eat 
that is better for the environment is also much better for our health as well. So, mm. and then the school, the guidelines for schools are supposed to follow the, gui- the U.S. dietary guidelines. So in 2012, in the fall, they implemented new guidelines in schools. And these guidelines required a much greater variety of vegetables. They required that every week there would be a green vegetable once a week and either orange or red vegetable once a week, a legume served as a vegetable once a week. Then they put the starchy in there to make the potato people happy, and then there was another category. So a much greater variety of vegetables every week, which is great, and a greater quantity of vegetables and fruits could be offered, and that's great. Also, they started allowing tofu, to be offered as a protein. So in the past, tofu could be offered as a vegetable, but not as a protein. And so now tofu can count as a protein, and um, so and, and beans and legumes always could count as a protein. So these are really the basis of the plant-based entrees in the schools would be either legumes, beans, or lentils, or split peas, or tofu. And, um, you know, we don't focus on tofu a whole lot, but, but I think it's a nice option to have. And we're happy um, that in both New York City and Ithaca, where we have formal partnerships, both use organic tofu. So that's great because a lot of people have concerns about genetically modified foods, but um, if it's organic, it can't be genetically modified. So it's important that the tofu be organic. So it's really interesting to hear this because, you know, in the plant-based community and in the healthy food communities, there's often a lot of talk about things like, you know, dietary guidelines and, and, you know, boards and things that most normal people have never heard of. And it's easy to think of this as sort of navel-gazing, like who cares what a bunch of people put down on a piece of paper in Washington that's going to go into a folder somewhere. But you're, you're at, the, at the front lines of this, right? You see that those, those backroom conversations end up affecting kids' lives and health, right? It's really important. The dietary guidelines are the U.S. government's official policy on food and nutrition. It's the guiding principle for any of the federal government programs, which includes the school lunch and breakfast and snack programs, but also other programs like WIC, Women, Infants, Children, and other feeding programs provided by the federal government. So whatever is in the dietary guidelines, these programs are supposed to reflect that. These guidelines are supposed to be based on science, but of course, as as anybody who knows, who works in this field, who may not know if they don't work in this field, is that the guidelines are very much influenced by the food industry. The food industry has lobbyists. So, for example, I've now testified twice for these guidelines. So, back in 2009 for the 2010 guidelines, back in 2014 for the 2015 guidelines, and what I can tell you is that out of 50 or 60 people who come to testify in person, they are more than half of the people come from the food industry. So you'll have multiple dairy industry people, you'll have the meat institute, you'll have the salt people, the sugar people, believe it or not, were there talking about why sugar is so important. Sugar is so important because if you add it to healthy foods, 
people will eat more of the healthy food. This is actually something they said. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but it was just incredible that you'll have the chewing gum people there and the canned food people there. So it's just, it's really, it's incredible how they basically make statements that really aren't based on science, but it's all about causing confusion. That's what it's all about. And in the end, we've seen these guidelines improve, but at the same time, um, there's still a long way to go. For example, we know for sure that um, processed meats cause colorectal cancer, and yet they can still be served in schools. And, I mean, I think that's true really of any meat, but I think starting with processed meats would be a good place to start. Hmm. And so I'm, I'm curious, you know, as, as you have sort of an insider's view of the process, the, uh, the legal sausage-making process, as it were, um, what's, what sort of science is admissible and how is it weighed? You know, so we have, we have all these epidemiological studies that show that you know, processed meat in particular, red meat, total meat, fish, chicken, pork, everything, contributes to various diseases and you know there's there's some randomized trials but mo- but but not a, not a ton of what you know the reductionist people would consider f- proof how does how does that stuff get weighed in and how, how how savvy are the people who end up making these distinctions and making these guidelines about different kinds of science and what it's worth Well, I think, you know, when people talk about that's politics, you know, um, it's, it's a very real and very frustrating problem because the lobbyists, the food industry, really does have an impact. And it's very frustrating. And um, yet, little by little, we make improvements. I mean, I think at least for the last 15 years, the three different versions of the guidelines buried deep inside and not necessarily the part that the public hears but it's a statement most of your calories should come from plant foods and that is based on science and these are supposed to be based on science and so we keep seeing more and more and um and and so over time i think the truth will win out it's going to take a while to get there um you know for example the dairy industry even though they don't any longer claim that milk builds strong bones, and you will never hear an actual dairy industry advertisement that states that, what happens is that other people still state it. Teachers and dietitians and doctors still state that. But there's research that shows, in fact, that people who drink more milk don't have stronger bones. And yet... Dairy is one of the categories in the guidelines. So, um, and everybody thinks it's there because of bones. And if milk doesn't build strong bones, and if milk causes prostate cancer, which, according to the research, it does, and it causes a lot of other problems, too. So that's just one example. But if that's true, what is it doing as its own food category? Why? Is it there? It's there because of the pressure of an industry. And, um, 
you know, for me, if that category, if milk wasn't required to be offered in schools, it is not required to be served, but it is required to be offered. And if it wasn't required to be offered, and schools did not have to offer it, they would have about 22 to 25 cents more per lunch meal to spend on healthy food. And that would be, it might not sound like a lot, but it's really a lot of money. Considering that the first increase in school lunch funding in something like 30 years, other than sort of the annual cost of, not the cost of living, but you know, the, right. the increase. Inflation adjustment. Inflation adjustment, that goes up every year. But other than that, there's been no real increase. And so back in 2012, it went up six cents per lunch. So, um, for example, in New York State, Senator Gillibrand asked that it go up 70 cents. The White House administration asked that it go up 18 cents, and they ended up with six cents. So you could see that 20, 22 to 25 cents extra per lunch meal would actually be quite a lot extra to make a positive difference. And now the dairy industry is saying, well, we need milk because of protein, and we need milk because of, I actually forget if it was magnesium or potassium, but I, I looked it up, whatever it was, and um, milk was only about a third of the way up from the bottom. And the other two-thirds of items that had more of that in it were things that are commonly eaten, like sweet potatoes and oatmeal and things like that. So it's not like it was something that's hard to get and you must drink milk in order to get it. And there's no, and protein is not considered a nutrient of concern in this country. So, so to claim that we have to drink milk to get protein, it's just, it's just an industry desperate to, you know, sell their product. Mm. And um, it's really not benefiting children. In fact, so many people can't digest milk that children in school may be, constipated, they may be bloated, they may be very uncomfortable, and um, this makes it hard to study and focus in school and learn when you're uncomfortable. Mm. Do, do you do research or look at research linking school food with classroom performance? We don't personally do that research, but um, we would be interested in doing it. But doing research like that really takes a big budget. And so is, <laughs> if is, anyone is anyone, interested in working with us, just give me a call. Yeah. Is anyone doing anything like that? Um, not that I know of. I mean, I think people do, you know, small. First of all, it's hard to do research in schools, number one. And number two, um, there's just so many different factors. But, it, I mean, I can tell you that the, the school in New York City that was the first public vegetarian school in New York City and in the country, the first public non-charter vegetarian school, they had higher test scores a year later after becoming vegetarian, higher test scores, better attendance, better grades, and lower BMIs, all positive things. But actually, just because that's true, it doesn't mean that the changes menu caused it. Of course, we would like to think it does, but from a research perspective, you can't prove it. There could be a lot of different factors. Mm -hmm. So um, it would be good to 
to do some serious research about this and then getting that research approved to do research, even if all the data is anonymous, it's very hard to get approval for research in schools, in public schools. Mm. Well, I guess that's one of the reasons public schools are run the way they're run. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. There's, I'm sure there's a, a zillion and one ways in which they could get better outcomes across the board. And it's... Uh... I mean, I think it, it goes without saying that if students are getting the nutrients they need to make their brains and bodies work the way they are meant to work, um, to fully support their immune systems. I mean, if they're sick and they're not in school, how can they learn? Or if they're eating a lot of processed junk food and their brains just aren't working correctly because of that, how can they focus and learn? You know, so, I mean, there's all these different factors that do make a big difference um, if they're overweight and kids are bullying them and making fun of them, which nobody should be doing that, but they do. It's very sad, and um, this really damages children's self-esteem and really destroys lives, and it's completely preventable. Since 2006, I think the incidence of uh, childhood diabetes and obesity, either it's gone way up to kind of epidemic proportions or we started paying attention to it. Uh, what, what do you what do you see over you know over the past nine years in terms of trends in kids eating kids health uh, kids weight? Well, what I see, and it's not true. I can't say this about everybody. It's not you know I can't make any generalization, but I can say I see a lot of kids who subsist on highly processed food, whose families don't eat homemade food who, you know, live on fast food or, you know, craft macaroni and cheese, you know, sort of, you know, that's dinner. Kids who, we go into the classroom with fruits and vegetables and kids who never had broccoli. Kids who don't know what a head of garlic looks like. You know, people who, who have not experienced fresh whole foods. One girl who got a stomach ache after eating apples and beets in the classroom that was the snack that we had with our curriculum. And, um, you know, I sat down and I spoke with her, and it turns out she never, ever, ever eats fruits or vegetables. They just do not eat fruits or vegetables in her family. And because they don't in her family, then when she comes to school and has the school lunch, even though she could eat them, she doesn't. Actually, students must take a fruit or a vegetable, one or the other. Um, that's required now as of 2012. But even though she would take it, she wouldn't eat it. So she tried it in the classroom, which was really great because for her that was a very big deal. And it gave her a stomach ache. And she made the statement, fruits and vegetables are bad because they give you stomach aches. And this is like now what her immediate belief system was upon getting a stomach ache. So I sat and I spoke with her, and we talked about how when you're not used to eating that food, it's new and it's different. Your body's not used to it. And so we talked about how every day when she came to school, maybe she would eat just a little bit of a fruit or a vegetable at lunchtime, just a little bit, not too much, just a little bit and see how that works for her. And then over time eat more. But I mean, this is really a very sad statement. You know, this child who never ate fruits or vegetables. And I've seen it in other schools, too. It's not an isolated incident. I've, I've actually, 
I've seen it a number of times where we where we hear that kids don't want to try the fruit or vegetables because they don't eat fruits or vegetables, like ever. Mm. So, so it doesn't matter how much sugar you're putting on it. <laughs> it's not making them have more healthy food, huh? Right. <laughs> so, so I feel that by getting into the school and educating students, it's really important. I mean, not only do we need to change the food that the school serves, but we also need to educate the students because without that education, the students are not um, – they, they're not going to go for the healthier food if they don't understand why and how it can help them. You know, for a kid, they may not understand that half of them already have the early stages of heart disease. Half of kids ages 2 to 15 already have fatty streaks in their arteries. That's from the Bogalusa Heart Study. And um, so they may not care about that and they may not care that eventually they'll get a heart attack or eventually they might get type 2 diabetes they care about right now so even though we do teach them about those diseases we also really try to focus on the right now because that's what they care about right now that eating healthy means they'll get colds and flus less often it means they'll be in a better mood and be less grumpy you know there's other things you can talk to the kids about that will have more of an impact on them now. Mm-hmm. That, and one of the really big ones is that they won't be constipated. Because when I, uh, in the first few years of elementary schools, children are very willing to talk about constipation and raise their hands to indicate that they are constipated most of the time. So when I go into kindergarten through second grade classes, you know, third grade and up, they don't want to talk about it. But the younger kids, they really don't have any sort of sense that this is embarrassing. I mean, they might think it's funny, but, um, they'll, you know, we'll talk about do they know what it means to be constipated. And somebody will usually know, and they'll raise their hand and they'll explain it. And then I'll ask for hands up how many kids get constipated and, like, all the hands go up. And then how many kids get constipated a lot. And almost all the hands go up. So it seems to me from all the many times I've done this that most kids in elementary school are constipated a lot of the time. And um, when we talk about eating more whole plant foods, not just fruits and vegetables, but beans and whole grains, that um, these will help them drinking water and moving their bodies, that these things will help them not be constipated and they will feel so much better. Mm. You know, and so... That can make a real difference for a kid who's really uncomfortable all the time and doesn't want to be. That's fascinating because you, I would think that they wouldn't know they were constipated if, if, if it's like, you know, all they're used to. And, you know, if they ever talk about it with friends, it's, it's sort of power for the course. And I'm sure if their parents are eating this way, you know, mm-hmm. is, that, is that like what, like, like moving their bowels like once a week and just and just feeling bloated and, and belly pain? Like, how, how are they surprised yeah, I mean, that that's we talk not normal? About, it's, we, I mean, we talk about what does it mean to be constipated. It means it's hard to go to the bathroom. Uh-huh. I mean, and really, to be very specific, you know, for a little kid, you know, sometimes you have to talk about it this way. Like, it's hard for your poop to come out, and it hurts. And you kind of want to go, but you can't, you know? And so... 
and that they know what that means. Even if it's the norm for them, they know that it's not pleasant. Uh-huh. And, they, and they're finding out for the first time that it, it has a name. It's, it has a name. It's not normal. And there's something they can do about it. That's right. And so I think that's one of the biggest motivators for young kids. And so the fruit and vegetable snack program, we started one in Ithaca back in 2008. We ran it for two years and then turned it over to another group. But during those two years, I mean, it was um, it was really great watching the kids. The kids were eating, first of all, everything was raw. Second of all, the kids were eating and there was no dips or dressings. Because a lot of the fruit and vegetable snack programs that happen around the country, you know, there's like ranch dressing to dip your vegetables in. So you can take 40 calories of really healthy vegetables and wreck them with two to 400 calories of dressing. So um, we did not do any dressings or dips in our program. And what happened as a result was the kids were eating all of these things. But adults who we consulted with about the program before we started really tried to talk us into the dips and dressing, dairy-based ones, of course. Uh-huh. And um, and we said, no, we're just we're not going to do it. And and they really felt that the kids would not be eating the vegetables. Of course, they would eat the fruits, but not the vegetables. And um, and I'm so happy to report, and you can actually watch a two-part video on our website about it, that the kids ate the vegetables, and they ate things, remember, raw, like kale, bok choy, turnips, rutabaga, I mean, things that you would not expect kids to be eating raw with no dressing. And the fact is, is that in a captive environment, in the classroom, if they're hungry, that's what's there, and they can eat it. And so we found that um, our manager, who was running the program at the time, she really um, had a great idea. Like, we used to start out, we used to do two or three different vegetables in the morning, and they, they, and then fruits in the afternoon. Then we ended up mixing them together, and I don't mean storing them together in a bowl, but like half the big bowl would be kale, pieces of torn kale leaves, and the other half of the bowl would be orange slices. So maybe some of the orange juice would get on the kale from the oranges. But that's pairing the fruits and the vegetables together seemed to be a really good approach. It seemed to work really well. And not that something from the fruit always got on the vegetable and that's what it made it appealing, but sometimes that did happen. And what happened, and you can hear about it in the video on our website, is that Uh, Teachers reported that children came back from weekends or vacations and actually reported that they really missed their fruits and vegetables because they just did not feel the same without them. And so the children, by having this exposure in the classroom, came to learn that these foods are good and they make me feel good and they know how good they felt. And so when they didn't get them for a few days or a week, they really they they understood how they were impacted by not having them. Hmm. So, so that's a big win. You know, that's a huge win for the kids to realize that. So it it also goes to show that because a lot of parents say, "Well, my kid will only eat chicken nuggets, and they will not eat anything else." So I have to buy them chicken nuggets. And the fact, the point I always like to make, because this really, it really does bother me. I mean, I'm a parent too, and I understand the frustrations, but 
you can't allow your child to dictate to you how you should raise them. We're the adults, and it's our job to make the decision of what's right for our kids. And if you buy macaroni and cheese in the box, and you buy potato chips, and you buy cookies, uh, and that's what you have at home, and that's what you eat, then that is what your kids will eat. And if you don't buy that, they may resist different food for a while, but if that's all that's available to them, they will eat. They will not starve. And it may be hard because they may cry and they may not eat for a few meals, but they will eventually eat. You know, so um, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely uh, something that a parent can do when their kids are young. And as they get older, it's harder. So if, you know, it's not impossible, but it does get harder. So that's why it's so important to raise kids on healthy food. Like, why would we give our kids sugar when they're little? And the only reason they can get it is because we hand it to them. So, of course, I did it too, so I'm not perfect, but I really tried to minimize it. And, um, and as a result, my daughter at birthday parties, she didn't want to eat the cake, and she didn't want to eat the ice cream. She actually wanted fruit. So the the public schools in America have traditionally had a, a more or less unspoken mandate, but still a really important one of kind of raising the level of the family. So, you know, when there were a lot of immigrant kids, the schools were there to sort of indoctrinate American values um, for for kids who come from families that were English isn't a first language. It was it was kind of to to assimilate them. And I see sort of a similar dynamic here where the kids are coming to school. They're not eating a single fruit or vegetable because that's what their families are doing. What's the impact of getting these kids to start seeing that the way they have been eating was, you know, was unwell for them? Does that cause problems with the parents? Do the families end up changing? Do the kids just go back to the way they were eating? How does, how does that dynamic work once you've you know, put them in the vegetarian school or given them new options or educated them? Yeah, well, it's it's great. Kids do have a big impact on their families, uh, just like with cigarettes and smoking. When kids started learning in school how dangerous tobacco is, and they would go home and they would pester their smoking parents to not smoke because they don't want them to die. Um, and sometimes parents would get really angry about it and upset. And so for some kids and I actually used to work in that field, and I used to go into schools and teach kids about this. And um, for some kids, you know, it, it could be, like, almost dangerous if they did that. But kids would, like, take their parents' cigarettes and hide them. So kids would ask me, can I, can I like, hide my parents' cigarettes? And i say, no, don't do that because, you know, um, it's just, you know, you have to be careful, too. But, um, but in, in that case... <laughs> I just heard stories, you know. So, but um, with food, you know, the kids go home. So, for example, the kids go home and they're like, let's get brown rice instead of white rice, you know. We had it at school. It tastes good. It's healthier. It has more fiber. Let's get that. And and then the parents would switch over to brown rice. Parents who whose cultures, in, this is in New York City, parents whose cultures um, are based around white rice. 
you know, so then the families are switching to brown rice. So that's one example. Um, we have these family dinner nights, and we serve a fully plant-based meal at these family dinner nights for up to 200 people. So it's the students and anyone who lives in their household, and they come, they have this whole plant-based meal, and, you know, we talk about how the um, uh, the plant-based meal has, you know, how it's full of healthy phytonutrients, it's full of fiber, you know, it doesn't have cholesterol, it's lower in fat, and not to get all, you know, reductionist about it, because we don't. We keep the bigger picture of eat more whole plant foods, eat less animal foods, eat less processed foods. That's really the big picture message that we give them, um, but also that you don't need any animal foods at all. Mm-hmm. So, so, so you're... you're... Um, is is the coalition a uh, explicitly vegan organization? Well, we don't really identify that way, but um, we do only promote plant foods. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if that's um, if you think that gets in the way a little bit, you know, as opposed to saying, you know, a healthy diet would limit animal foods to you know a couple portions a week. Do you find do you find that the, that you walk a fine line or that you know that that there's people, maybe teachers or principals or other administrators or parents, who push back against what they would perceive as the extremism of a, of an all vegan diet, as opposed to, you know, smaller steps like just having more fruits and vegetables and getting rid of the the really processed stuff. Well, I think that you know because our message is not go vegan. Our message is eat more whole plant foods, eat less animal foods, eat less processed foods. So we're not telling people to never eat animal foods. We're, we're encouraging plant foods. We're telling them how good plant foods are. We sometimes, but not always, you know, make the point that you don't have to eat any animal foods. But, but the, really the bigger message is to reduce animal product and processed food consumption and increase whole plant foods. And so do we walk a fine line? Well, I feel like everybody agrees with this basic message that we have, the basic message to eat more whole plant foods, less animal foods, less processed foods. Pretty much everybody agrees with that, except maybe, you know, paleo people. But it's really funny because even paleo people um, tend to eat don't even really eat all that much meat, even though it's their their PR makes it sound like they do. But I know some people, and they who are paleo, and they acknowledge that they think meat is important, but it's not that they eat a whole lot of it. In fact, they eat less than some other people do. Uh huh. I guess I guess so they're kind of interesting. If they're real paleo, their standards are higher as to. What, what would yeah, they're more that? into uh, they're more into the organic meat, and anybody who eats organic meat eats less. And anybody who knows anything about the environment understands that our our um, environment cannot sustain this huge amount of um, animal products being raised. So, I think you know most people agree. Not all, but most people agree. We need to be eating less animal products. And everybody agrees we need to eat less processed foods. Even anybody who loves eating them agrees they know they should eat less. Right. So, so, so I you... think our message is really, I think our message is a message that's um, 
accepted by nearly everyone. Um, but the fact is, we are not going to tell people to eat chicken with the skin off. We're just not going to encourage chicken eating at all. We're going to encourage plant foods. Nobody needs help in one different way to eat chicken or cheese. You know, people pretty much take care of that by themselves. Mm-hmm. What they really need help with is increasing the amount of whole plant foods in their diet. So that's where we keep our focus. Gotcha. So when I, when I look at the, the things you're involved in and the obstacles you face, almost all of the obstacles can be summed up in one word, money, right? So that there's really not a lot, there's, there's, there's really very little respectable science, if any, that disputes your, your basic points of view. Um, but when, you, when I look at, you know, the food industry and their lobbyists that you describe coming to all these events, uh, presumably the, um, the government officials who are going to end up making the policy are very sensitive to campaign contributions and to PR. Um, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, uh, which has a mission to, to promote the economic interests of, of farmers, including, you know, beef and dairy farmers and, and all the rest. Um, and even, you know, s- supposedly neutral uh, science-based organizations like the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, which I don't know if you just saw their, their kerfuffle over, they accidentally put their seal of approval, Kids Eat Right, on craft Singles. I saw it. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's an example of, you know, what is what is going on here and who gave who money you know so it's 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 a really it's a serious conundrum that we're in but the science is behind the plant-based eating the science is really there kids go to school to learn and um they should learn about what science shows is healthy eating what what their parents choose to feed them at home you know some people would say, well, that's their business. Some other people would say, well, no, it's destroying the planet. It's causing all these health problems. Not really. But, but, the, the, but the reality of our society today is people can feed their kids what they want, and, um, and people can make their own choices about food. But um, what we teach kids in school should be based on, on fact, not what I call food industry fiction. And um, also... Because our federal tax dollars pay for the school meals, some kids get free meals, some kids get reduced price meals, but even the kids that pay the so-called full price for their meals, even those meals receive some subsidies from the federal government, which means our tax dollars. So my feeling is that um, I can't understand why my tax dollars would be spent so that schools could put pepperoni on a pizza when the research is extremely clear that processed red meat causes colon, colorectal cancer. I just I have a real problem with that. And I don't have any problem with my money being spent to provide meals to children who need them, but I want those meals to be healthy. Then if they want to have potato chips when they go home, you know, that's between them and their families. But schools should model positive, healthy behavior. They do in so many other ways, you know, in so many other ways. But this issue is still, you know, not fully addressed. And I I will say, though, that the food service directors, they work so hard and they really do care, but they don't necessarily know all of this. 
I know in um, New York City and Ithaca, they certainly, they understand, and they'd be very happy for the, and they offer a variety of healthy foods, and they'd be very happy if more students ate more healthy food, but the reality is that it takes a lot of education, a lot of effort, a lot of marketing geared towards kids. You know, this is why fast food places spend so much money on marketing, because it works. Well, we could too, and it would work, but, you know, the resources that um, we need to do that are not there. So specifically, my organization, all the pieces are in place for change. Um, we have these partnerships with the schools. The more we can do in any school to create change, the better. The more the more change we'll create. All the all the pieces are in place. We're ready to go. We're ready to have more feet on the ground, but funding limits that. So that is a frustration because we could do a lot more. Hmm. So that reminds me of a question I wanted to ask you, which is, you know, given the the huge megaphone that comes with with lots of money with selling all the junk food and all the other stuff. One of the few people who was really able to bring a lot of attention to this in the last few years is Jamie Oliver. And uh -huh. I'm wondering if you you know, he's been criticized for some of the things he did in going to schools and kind of running roughshod over the the lunch ladies and the and the, um, the, the you know the the school because the cameras were rolling he's been lauded for for doing these um, outrageous PR stunts showing about how much sugar is, and and kind of pointing out what the green the pink slime is in uh, you know what what's what is your sense of how he has moved the conversation forward um, you know where uh, I think he I think he has moved the conversation forward but I think he's also done it in a, a way to you know have a sensationalist TV show and um also not all the facts were always correct so I think I think the gist of it was that he brought attention to it and that respect it was good I think the sort of disrespect for the schools and the food service personnel is not good. So I have very mixed feelings about it, and um, it, it has moved the conversation, but also in the show there was a number of inaccuracies mm -hmm. in relation to how the school meal programs work. So if the general public who was watching that show believes that's how it works, then they may, they may be misinformed. So um, I actually tried to contact them to let them know about these things, but there was really no way. I couldn't get through. I could not find a way to actually reach somebody. Mm. There was nothing on their website that would let you actually be in touch with a real person. So, um, but but I think it I think it did move the conversation a little bit. In that respect, it was good. Um, it's just that some of it was inaccurate and. I never, I don't, I just, I don't like what I saw, you know, because we work very much with the schools that we work with. You cannot create change by by making somebody feel bad or by not recognizing how hard they're working, you know, how hard they're working and they're doing the best they can. And everybody who works in the school lunch field, school meal field, I should say there's breakfast too, after school snacks, but these um, 
people work under extremely limited budgets. They're not paid enough. They they don't have the resources they need, and um, there's not enough training. So I think the people are really, I kind of consider them heroes because it's, like, amazing they can accomplish what they do accomplish. They work so hard. They care so much. So many of them care so much. So I think there needs to be more money that goes into the program to make it a better program. You know, it's really interesting. People always talk about how our children are our future, but then they don't put their money where their mouths are because then they, 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 these programs are drastically underfunded. Right. So it's like if, if, we, if you wrote like a dystopian science fiction novel about our planet... Like, no one would believe it. You know, right, because... You know, the, here's the richest society in the history of history that is, is you know, has set up so many layers to make sure that our children are malnourished. It's, it's insane. It is. It's really frustrating, and that's what I'm fighting. And I think that's what makes... You know, I love the work that I do, and I... I feel good that I'm changing, helping change so many lives. But I'm also so frustrated that what I'm fighting against is a result of lies and misinformation. You know, that is what is so frustrating to me. Hmm. I think if in the media it came out about like how really super bad processed foods and animal foods are, then I think for your health, you know, I think that if it was just really spelled out, I think a lot of people would change. And I think if it was really spelled out about how addicting certain foods are, like, you know, Michael Moss's book, um, Sugar, Salt, Fat, I may have it in the wrong order, but, you know, New York Times writer, and he wrote this book, and he, he talks about how the food industry has something they call the bliss point, and something like seven of the biggest food industries came together to talk about this topic, the bliss point, getting to just that right combination of sugar, salt, and fat, or, you know, it might not include all three of those, but that makes a person want to keep eating something, you know, like potato chips and, uh, or a candy bar, but the point is they want to keep eating it. They just can't stop. And um, because you could have too much salt and too much sugar and too much fat that would make a person want to stop. So there is this actual bliss point, they call it. And, um, and so this food really is addictive. People, you know, I, I would take a bag of Cheetos into a middle school and talk to students. And um, it says zero grams of trans fat on the front. And yet there's trans fat in there because if it says partially hydrogenated, oil, there's trans fat. But the food industry convinced the federal government to let them round down to zero if there was less than half a gram per serving. And that's the key, per serving, because who eats just one serving of pretty much anything? But especially something like Cheetos or potato chips. Um, so this bag had nine servings in it. And I would hold up this bag and I would ask the students, how much of this bag do you eat? And virtually all of the students would tell me the whole bag, mm. especially boys. Boys would definitely tell me the whole bag, and girls would say, like, at least half. 
So now if you add up, because then since they have to have under half a gram per serving, you can be pretty sure that they have just under, you know, half a gram per serving. So then if you ate the whole bag, that would be like at least four grams of trans fats, something super unhealthy. And um, yet on the front of the package, it says zero grams of trans fats. And on the nutrition label, trans fats, zero grams. And uh, the idea that this bag contained nine servings, <laughs> it's, it's a joke. And so um, people start eating that kind of stuff, and they can't help it. They might feel like they know they shouldn't be eating all of it, but they just keep eating it. And so, um, and so there's a lot of... There's a lot of um, information that like when we give presentations to parents and we talk about the addiction to sugar, salt, and fat and some of the tricks the food industry plays like the whole grain guaranteed. Well, look on some of those labels. It might say whole grain guaranteed. It might only have one or two grams of fiber. The reason people want to eat whole grains is, well, they know they're healthier, but also they associate whole grains with more fiber. And yet these cereals that have some whole grain in them have hardly any fiber. And they're also maybe full of sugar and artificial colors and preservatives. So they're really, and so when we present these kinds of things, we, we really, in our presentations, not only to kids but to parents too, talk a lot about the food industry and the tricks, how labels lie, you know, and um, just the, the tactics that they use to addict us to their food, to trick us to think that their food is healthy when it's not, and, you know, that label you were talking about on the craft Singles, that was an example. So um, I hear you talking about, you know, working with the uh, school administrators and the nutritionists and dietitians and, and lunch people and, um, you know, really honoring what they're up to and not making making them wrong or bad or or enemies out of them. Are there, is there anyone you can do that with in the in the food industry? Are there organizations, companies, uh, industries where you feel like, you know, they've, they've just been misinformed and there's a there's a chance to get them on your side? You know, a lot of times people think it's like some big conspiracy theory. And I know Colin Campbell talks about this, but he doesn't think it's that. And I don't think it's that either. I mean, I actually met somebody who worked for Smuckers who was going off into a health coaching kind of business, but he worked for Smuckers. He was a good person. You know, he had a family, you know, a wife and kids. We tabled next to each other at a PTA conference. And, um, you know, I feel like this is a good person. He wants to do good in the world. And um, just because somebody works for the food industry, even in a high-level position, you know, it, it doesn't mean that they're evil, you know. They're people. They have families. They have lives. They're doing what their job is. Their job is to make more profit. Their job is to sell more product. That's what their job is. There's something called the B Corporation, and there's more and more at least natural-type food industries that are becoming B Corporations. And B corporations are really great because they have a different bottom line. Their bottom line isn't just money. They're allowed to take into consideration other important factors, like the well-being of their employees and the well-being of their customers, social justice issues, environmental issues, 
So B corporations are something very interesting. There are more. These tend to be the kind of foods that you'll find in a health food store or the natural food section of a supermarket. Mm -hmm. They tend to be smaller companies. Gotcha. So that's because it's something that hasn't been around as long as, you know, a regular corporation. Right. All right. So, so given that your mission is very clear and one thing you are looking for is more resources, how can people help if they've, they've listened to this and they're like, yeah, I could see my money really making a difference uh, in, in, in this organization? What, what do people do if they want to help out? Well, they can go on our website at healthyschoolfood.org. Again, that's healthyschoolfood.org. And there's a contact page. My information is there. My name, again, is Amy Hamlin. And um, they're welcome to just make a donation on our webpage, but they can call me. There's so many different ways to help, and it's not always money, although we certainly do need funds. We'd like to put more feet on the ground. We would like to have a chef who just goes around to all of our different schools all the time and works with the food service workers. You know, this also gives them a lot of confidence and and, and helps them increase their their um, their skills. So it's it's good for their careers as well. And um, but to make sure the food is done right, to make sure it tastes really good, to do taste testings with the kids. You know, when you have a chef with the chef uniform go into the classroom and do taste testings, it becomes all of a sudden much more exciting, something that they might not have even noticed on the lunch line. Um, we want to have, you know, we do this, but it just doesn't happen nearly as much as we would like to, um, where we do the presentations to the parents at the PTA meetings, to the teachers, to the food service workers, to the administrators, the uh, family dinner night events. So um, we also can use volunteers. So if somebody's a grant writer, if somebody has a connection to a celebrity and that celebrity is interested in the topic and we have um, auctions on Charity Buzz where, you know, maybe there's a celebrity experience that somebody purchases and that money benefits our organization. So it's not necessarily cash, though that's good, but there are other ways to contribute with your time, your expertise. You know, we need, we would like to find some marketing and PR people who would take us on as a pro bono client. So there's many ways to contribute. Awesome. Well, so I'm I'm really glad to catch up to you after after uh, nine years since our our last interview, and I'm I'm putting out there that in another nine years we're going to look back on this conversation and just laugh at how backward we were as a society <laughs> and and all the amazing progress we've made. And with people with people like you on the front lines, I have every reason to to hope that will be the case. I think there will be. Many more vegetarian schools. I think many more schools will be making homemade food. I think kids will be more open. There's so many people working on these issues, not just in schools, but in general, on food issues and healthy food, local food, plant-based food, you know, organic food. And I just, I feel that um, because it's all growing so much, I think it'll continue to grow. It's what people want. And also, I think with the... Um, social media and the talk shows, I, I feel like the word is really spreading through both talk shows and social media, 
the word is really spreading in a way that it never could before social media or before you had all these talk show hosts who were interested in this topic. So I do think that that's helpful and that that's changing. A lot of people now understand that eating a plant-based, whole foods, plant-based diet is healthy. And it used to be those same people would say it's extreme. Now those same people say, oh, I know it's healthy. I really respect you for eating that way. And um, I know it's a good thing. And even if they're not doing it themselves, they now know that it's a good thing. And that's a step. That's a really important step, you know, because then then they're going to start to make changes. Awesome. All right. Well, Amy, thank you so much for taking the time and I'll let you get back to uh, to the front lines of this of this thank you. Re- really good fight. So thanks so much for talking to me. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. Have a great day. Bye. You too. I hope you really enjoyed that interview with Amy Hamlin. If you're inspired to do more, check out her website, healthylunches.org. There's all sorts of educational material. If you are near a school or have kids in school, why don't you uh, go and see if you can help out, do a class, introduce kids to fruits and vegetables, talk to other parents, and see if you can bring about some positive change in the food environment for the kids in your community. If you want to support this podcast, I would be thrilled. One of the best ways is, of course, to share it with friends and colleagues, share it on social media. Another is to go to iTunes and leave a review. That helps people who are searching for health and wellness in general find this particular message. Quick garden update. We've got tomatillos and blueberries. If you've never had a tomatillo, See if you can find them in a local farmer's market. They're like small green tomatoes with a kind of a smoky, complex flavor, often used in salsa verde, but a fresh one is unlike anything I've ever had before. Uh, We got four inches of rain last week, and I'm hoping that uh, things return to sort of normal. We're we're beginning to settle into a bit of a drought situation here, despite that that huge downpour one night. And remember that... uh, The way we eat influences our environment, influences our climate. The agriculture is one of the biggest contributors to climate change, and we can turn that around if we return ourselves and our children to a sane way of eating. So until next time, be well, my friends.